Hey guys, Dane here with the Darkroom Podcast. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Shaz Jung, a naturalist, big cat tracker, wildlife photographer, and National Geographic cinematographer. For the last decade, Shaz has built and managed multiple wildlife conservations and ecotourism camps in South India and East Africa, leveraging his art to preserve the animals and the forest he grew up in. Shaz began his pursuit in conservationism by tracking and studying leopards, allowing him to develop a breathtaking body of work that now captivates an array of wildlife. Shaz's photography can only be described by his own unique genre called environmental surrealism. In partnership with National Geographic, Shaz's story and those of the animals around him will be shared around the world. Shaz is such a passionate dude and it was so cool to be able to talk to him. So here is a conversation with Shaz Chung. Welcome to the Dark Room Podcast, where you'll get to hear from the best full-time creators on the planet. From starting out to where they are now and everywhere in between. Welcome to the dark room. Shaz, dude, thank you so much for giving me the time, man. Yeah, it's good to be here. So real quick to give some context for people to explain what you do. Very long story short, because there's just so, there's so much about your story. You essentially run an ecotourism and wildlife conservation camps in South India and East Africa. You photograph along the way, you photograph the journey, you photograph this wildlife that means so much to you and, and you put it out there and it, it really, you know, helps all those efforts and, and kind of brings everything full circle. Right. So if you were explaining what you do, uh, as a long story short, how would you, how would you put it? Okay. So I'm primarily a naturalist and a, and a big cat specialist who um, tracks and studies leopards in particular and the melanistic leopard. And I'm also now a cinematographer for National Geographic and a professional wildlife photographer who uses my work to create a unique genre, which I like to call environmental surrealism. And I also run wildlife lodges in South India and East Africa. Amazing. And how long have those wildlife lodges been going for? So we've had them, we've, yeah, we've had them for the last 10 years now. So I graduated from university in 2009 and my parents actually built wildlife lodges back in the eighties and the nineties. So it's kind of like a family run, um, business, which, which was a really nice platform for me to, you know, step on. And I actually did economics and law in university and here I am tracking cats. So so yeah, I mean it was it was not expected, but when I graduated I came back to India and started going on more safaris, started connecting back to like my roots and that's when I realized that this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah, did you always have that kind of being, you know, in the back of your head growing up? Because obviously you grew up around this and you got to see your parents, you know, build it essentially from the ground up. What was the early years like kind of seeing all of this unfold? Yeah, I mean, it was the forest today in South India is very different from what it was in the 80s and the 90s. So now you have, you know, more resorts, it's slightly more commercial, and wildlife tourism over the last 10 or 15 years has increased by three or 400%. But in the 80s and the 90s, when my parents decided to build a wildlife lodge, you know, the jungle back then was really wild. I mean, there were no roads. We had to make our own roads. There was no human in like a hundred kilometer radius. 
and all you had were like the local tribes which were the honey hunters who mm. were just at the you know base of the hill and we just cleared a part of the land we set our resort up there and i had some really really nice memories because back then you you felt like you were actually lost in the jungle you know like because you were right and and everything was a lot more raw so growing up i kind of have these amazing memories of just a plethora of wildlife which yes you do see today but you you see it i see it from a different perspective but back then the romance and the beauty of the forest was just it was just so captivating in its in its own way it was very mysterious and enigmatic because of the lack of commercial activity in and around it yeah and and yeah so growing up as a kid seeing that it was jungle book it was i would watch these movies made by disney and i'd read these books and there i was you know living it and actually seeing those animals in real life but of course in 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 the jungle you know there weren't any schools so i had to slowly shift back to the city to get educated and i then decided to go to amsterdam um a small town near amsterdam called utrecht to study uh, economics and law so i kind of lost my connection with the wild then yeah. and you know life finds its own path and i thought i'd go into the corporate world and and yeah i mean i came back like i said to the to to south india and that's when i started connecting back with my roots and it's all about exposure i guess as as a child and you know you suddenly start having these you know you start reminiscing and then it all sort of makes sense and then you know it just worked out and i decided to instead of move i was supposed to go to new york for a job where my fiance was yeah. and i decided to just hang back and i said listen i found my calling this is what i really want to do and it all happened when i saw my first leopard yeah i was going to ask so so you come back from school and your mindset i'm sure is still kind of geared towards the corporate world or did you want to come into this with a with an open mind and and really find a place for yourself in wildlife and where it all started for you no actually it, i came back and and i had actually signed my contract to join the um company where in new york and i had 3 months between um you know when i was in india and my contract was going to start in may and i remember it was in jan when i had finished university wow. and there was there was no i mean there was no calling back then i didn't i didn't come back to stay in the jungle it's just during those 3 months when i was wilding time i spent time in the jungle because when i'm not in the city i'm usually there right and i think i'd come back after being in university i was more mature i had a lot more exposure i met a lot of people i knew what the outside world looked like and worked like and i came back to the jungle a different person and that's when i wanted that's when i sort of decided that you know i can i can do something good over here and and if i want to change the world or have people respect the jungles which i used to love and i've dedicated my family has dedicated their lives to then i got to stay here and and put my heart and you know soul into it. Yeah. And did you have that moment where, you know, you really realized that this was for you? Cuz not a lot of people get that moment. That's a tough moment to get, you know, when when you really know where you belong. Absolutely. And I did. It was on safari when I saw my first leopard and his name was Scarface. Yes. And, yes, yes. And yeah, that was the journey. That was when it all began because there was this young 
beautiful leopard, you know, just about to embark on his journey. And there I was. Um, we both, you know, so different, but at the same time on such similar crossroads of our lives. And, and yeah, and um, I decided that I was going to spend the next couple of months tracking him and studying his behavior because no one really had. Right. Um, everyone's so focused, so centric on the tiger and protecting the tiger, but the leopard is like the forgotten animal. And I said, let me try and get some pictures back then, you know, 10 years ago, not many people have photographed the leopard or mm -hmm. studied its behavior. Right. And yeah, that's when my journey with Scarface began. And I decided that this was it because through him, we both together discovered the forest and, um, you know, it was written with like little secrets. It was like a puzzle begging to be like, you know, you know, put together and, and yeah, it was, it was, it's been beautiful. I mean, the journey over the last 10 years and he's still there. He's still the king of the backwaters, as we call it, the area which he rules. And, and yeah, I mean, we go back, but he's sort of the catalyst. <laughs> so when, when you were younger, wh what was your interactions with, with the wildlife then compared to, let's say, you know, the first time that you really saw Scarface and realized that, you know, you wanted to, to know more. And, you know, did you have that interaction with any wildlife before you left to go to school when you were younger? Or was this all kind of the first time that this was happening for you? No, actually, when I was younger um, and my parents were building their first lodge somewhere in the late 80s, I was very, very young then. And of course, there was, you know, there was nothing around there in the jungle. And my only social life back then was, was animals. So there was this elephant, uh, his name was Wilson, and nice. he was born on the exact same day as me. Wow. So on wow. January 28th and the same year. And, no way. You know, my, yeah, yeah, it was, it was crazy. So I have pictures of this, and we were, I was taken there every day to go spend time with him. And till I was about three or four, you know, when I had to come back to the city and start my school, but till then, I had this really, really amazing bond with this elephant. And of course, I was very young to sort of understand it. It was more like a pet I loved. But as I you know, grew older, even when I went to university and I came back for my Christmas holidays or my summer holidays, mm -hmm. I would go spend some time with him. And elephants never forget. You know, there's a way... You can see it in their eyes. You can see it in their body language. And you just know it's something, it's indescribable. It's very difficult to put into words. But when there's a deep bond with with uh, something that isn't human, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's just you can see it, you can feel it, but you, you can't describe it. And that's something I had with Wilson. And back then, I mean, we never really saw cats, like no leopard, no tiger in the 80s or 90s. It was just, my parents were infatuated with elephants like I am today with leopards. And, um, but yeah, to answer your question, it was, it was this elephant which I had to connect with. But again, I was very young. It wasn't anything more than just, you know, that bond we shared. But after I came back, I was, of course, a different person. And I was older, saw the world a different way, had a different perspective of the forest, wildlife, nature. I wanted to conserve it. And um, I wanted to use ecotourism as a tool for conservation as well. So I started with the leopard because they were the forgotten animal and there was Scarface and yeah, it just worked out. Uh, and they're so beautiful, like absolutely 
unbelievable. I'm looking at pictures right now of Scarface too. And if you if you guys are listening and you want to take a look at these cats and 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 these animals, these beautiful wildlife animals, you can go on on your site uh, shazjung.com. S H A A Z J U N G dot com. Go to leopards of uh, Kabini. Correct? Is that how you pronounce yeah, it? That's Kabini. Correct. Um, so, so to, to jump back for a second to Scarface and just to these first interactions with these amazing cats. Uh, so you come in, you see Scarface and you see just how powerful and and just how, you know, incredible that is. Uh, when, so you realize that you want to start tracking leopards and, and when does Project Partis come into play in this whole thing? And can you kind of explain to what Project Partis is and and when it started? Yeah. So Project Partis came in when, when my my early years of tracking Scarface, I did it as a naturalist without a camera. But I soon realized the importance of a camera, not to be a wildlife photographer, because back then the cameras we could afford and the cameras we had weren't very good. So I wanted to identify these leopards and track their behavior and also try and understand their territories and if there was any conflict with humans as well. When I saw Scarface, he, he didn't have a scar on his face. He actually fought with his father, who we call Pardis. Right. And then the next day we saw him with a huge scar and he took over. But it was Pardis, his father, who got pushed out of his territory and moved in towards the villages where our resort was. So our resort, which we call the bison, is on the periphery of the forest, mm-hmm. which is very close to Scarface's territory. And his father got pushed into where we were. So what we were witnessing and what I wanted to document was the transition from a leopard in the forest to a village leopard and how their diet changes, how the conflict between man and animal plays a role and and, and just be able to to witness something so rare, but at the same time, something that's really affecting India today, which is the man-animal conflict. And that's when Project Pardis came to light. And we decided to study a handful of leopards very intimately in the forest and do the same with leopards outside the forest. But it was a lot easier to study leopards in the forest because they were not shy and they moved, they were diurnal, they moved in the day as well. But the village leopards were, were, were very crepuscular and they liked to move you know, at twilight and the early hours of the morning and extremely nocturnal as well. Why? So they could avoid conflict with humans because they were living and thriving in the heart of the human settlements. So these were the two leopards which we wanted to study. And the perfect example was Pardis, which is why the project was called Project Pardis. It was Scarface's dad. And the transition from, you know, being the king of the forest to now having to live his life in the village um, where, you know, life, life is pretty difficult. They have to live off dogs. They have to live in sugarcane fields. They don't have females to court with. Um, They have to sometimes feed off rabbits and squirrels. You can see how their entire body shape slowly changes and they become a lot more skittish, a lot more shy and aggressive. And then if the situation isn't dealt with properly, it can lead to man animal conflict where they can start, attacking the livestock like the goats and the cattle and then come into conflict with the shepherds and maybe eventually even try and hunt down a human. Yeah. Is that, is that something that happens very rarely or does it happen more than, than, you know, we'd know unless we looked into it? 
Well, the conflict is growing. And the reason behind that is because our national parks in India aren't, aren't you know, they should be growing, but they're in fact shrinking. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, whatever these, these, these few national parks that are, which are tiger reserves. So anywhere where the tiger lives in is called a tiger reserve and is protected by the 1974 Wildlife Act, which has very strong, strict rules, rightfully so. So the forests in India are shrinking, but at the same time, there's successful park management, which means that the shrinking forests are being looked after very well. So now they've got these solar bore wells, which are pumping perennial water through the forest. Now, what this does is it, it, it leads to an increasing population in the park, but the park is shrinking. Now, these are territorial animals which require space and don't allow other cats to live within their same territory. So this increasing population has to eventually be pushed out, but there's no forest to be pushed out into. So they come into conflict with humans. Now, that is your territorial animals, which are the cats, the leopards and the tigers. And then you have your migratory animals, which are the elephants, where their old migratory parts have all eroded. Settlements have come through. Highways have been built. And that also leads to a lot of conflict. So to answer your question, the man-animal conflict in India is definitely increasing. And just in the last two or three years, we've had some very high-profile cases of man-eating tigers and leopards as well. So, yeah, I mean, that's the harsh reality of it in an, in an area, in a, in a country like India, where you have such a diverse population of Asiatic wildlife, you know, but at the same time, the country is so focused on economic growth and development. There is going to be conflict because your cities are getting bigger and the forests are getting smaller. Do you ever have run-ins with dealing with poachers when it comes to these cats? What does that look like when it, when it comes from the opposite yeah. side? You know, when it comes from the, the man causing conflict with the animals? Right. Uh, poaching, to be very honest, in South India isn't much of a problem at all. It's also because the trade routes into China are, are, you know, China's far. Whereas as opposed to, let's say, the northeast of India where, you know, the trade routes are right there and it's a lot easier to sort of traffic these animals. Right. Over here in the south, it's not. And it, it's it's very difficult for, for poachers to sort of track the animal, kill him, in, because the forests here are also extremely dense, right. kill the animal, and then sort of, transported out to other parts where you know they can be bought where there's a market so i'd say poaching for these big cats isn't a major threat however the major threat they face is from again the man animal conflict and that is through poisoning so because these cats don't have um, any forest to move into like when the cubs become bigger and they need new territory, you know, they get pushed out into the villages Then they start killing cattle and goats. And that's when, you know, the villagers get extremely upset because although they're getting compensated uh, for each cow that dies, it's not nearly as much as the market value of, you know, the, the, the livestock. So, and in India, you have to understand that people measure their wealth with their livestock in rural India. Right. You know, it's from the number of cows you have, it's from the number of goats you have. It plays a very important role in people's lives over here. So when an animal like, like a tiger or a leopard comes and kills a, a cow or a goat, 
you know, those are animals they've had for 10 or 15 years. Those are animals they use, they revere, they worship. And it leads to, a, you know, an, an enormous amount of hatred uh, towards these predators. And that's when they start getting poisoned. So in 2019, there's not enough forest in South India for all the cats to go into safely. So what, what needs to happen in the next 20, 30 years for, for the growth to happen or, <clears throat> excuse me, for the growth to happen organically? How can this be changed and fixed? Well, just to, just to come back on that, to just recorrect. Okay. Um, yes, please, please. Situation. No, no worries. Um, in all of India, like is India as a whole, the forests are shrinking. However, in South India, you have something called the Nilgiri Biosphere, which connects three or four thousand square kilometers of forest, which you don't have anywhere else in in India. And that biosphere allows the animals to move, maintain a healthy gene pool. But these connecting corridors to other forests have been eroded because of settlements coming up, highways being built. So although South India is shrinking, in, or India as a whole is shrinking, and mm-hmm. South India you know, has a man-animal conflict, it is one of the few places in India and all of the world which has such a large biosphere which connects so many forests, which allows these animals to also successfully migrate and populate. Right. To answer your question, India as a whole, how do we increase these forests? Um, you know, the the only way possible is to buy or lease agricultural land and reconvert it and regenerate that land back into forest land. And this is something which Africa have done very successfully. You look at the East, you look at their private game reserves and the models they you know, they have for ecotourism and wildlife and conservation. So you're, a private entity is allowed to buy forest and, and you know, all land and convert it into forest and then have animals live there and then turn it into a private game sanctuary. That isn't allowed in India yet because of the Wildlife Protection Act, because of the laws, because of the tribal settlements, the development around the area, right. the humans and there's a lot of you know laws and bureaucracy which which india hasn't come there yet but i do think that is the future that you know we have to take these pockets of land which which border the forest on the periphery of the forest you know buy it out lease it out get large organizations to to sort of you know buy hundreds and thousands of acres and then convert that back into forest that's the only way right we're going to see uh, forest cover increase. And when it comes to the wildlife camps that, that you guys are involved in and that you have, how do you go about protecting the lands with ecotourism? And can you kind of jump into to what it looks like with your camps in particular? Yeah, so we're strong believers of ecotourism being a tool for conservation as well. In India, it's very simple. You're not allowed to own private land inside the forest. You're not allowed to have your resorts and properties inside the forest. They have to be on the periphery, which is where our resort is. And we have our resort is spread over 10 or 15 acres. And we have built it on the ecotourism guidelines. Unlike most of the other places around us, we've used structures, mainly wooden, which merge into the forest. We use alternate sources of energy, which is solar. 
um, we have a very low inventory in, in comparison to the rest. And most importantly, 90% or more is ha- of, the, of the staff are hired from the local area. So we're providing jobs. But what the Bison, what our resort does is it's also created a trust, which is called the Buffer Conflict Resolution Trust of India, BCRTI to, in short. And what BCRTI does is it addresses the man-animal conflict. It addresses other conflicts in the area. For example, women not being able to work, the caste problem, which India you know, faces in rural parts as well. And it gives these people opportunities. So it, it, gives, it allows women to come to these centers and train. And we provide them with vocational training which they, where they can learn skills and then go into cities where women are allowed to work and earn and become another source of income for their family. And we do this not just with women, we do this with the lower caste, we do this with um, all people from the village. And our aim is to, of course, better their livelihood, but at the same time, change their mentality. Right. And that is, you know, help them understand the economic impact of wildlife in the area, and at the same time, how they can conserve it. And you know, we use various methods of doing this by, you know, teaching, going to the schools and, you know, showing Disney movies where animals are so these kids can connect just like how we did with, with you know, Bagheera, Mowgli, Lion King, Shere Khan. So just like how we did um, as kids, you know, we want these kids to connect to to wildlife as well. And that comes at a young age. Right. And And people also have to understand, like, especially in rural India, that, you know, these animals which they they fear or detest, you know, they are revered and worshipped in all their religious scriptures. So you go back to the Vedas, you go back to the ancient scriptures of Hinduism, you know, it talks very, very, um, very, you know, uh, what's the word for it, uh, positively about, about animals and how to treat them. And, yeah. You know the the tiger is revered. You have a god which which um, uh, which rides on a tiger. You have, of course, the elephant god, which is Ganesh. You have the monkey god. So these animals have to be revered and worshipped the same way because they were a part of your ancient religious scriptures. And and you know wildlife in our country is is the flora and fauna we have. We're blessed with it. Yeah. And these people need to understand the importance of it. And um, yeah, I mean, that's that's what we try to do. We try to change their mentality. We try to open their eyes. And it's not easy, but, you know, as long as you can change maybe even just one family out of the 100 families, then that's that's a win. Yeah. And then with the backwater sanctuary, you guys rehabilitate animals until they're ready to go back into the wild? Uh, yeah, so the backwater sanctuary is run by my sister, and she runs an equine, yes, rehabilitation center. These horses aren't wild, so we never reintroduce them back into the wild. So right. these are all abused, domesticated horses, like your your race horses, which gotcha. after you know you know they get put down. Then your your abandoned horses, your which which you know 
cart people and 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 uh, luggage around the cities your donkeys as well so all of these which you know after they reach a certain age and they no use to their owners they they either get put down because they're expensive to look after or they get abandoned on the streets so what she does is she brings them in rehabilitates them and gives them a home with rehabilitation programs like this do you guys ever have situations where you can't bring in as many animals as you'd like because of space or because of rules and regulations? Or is it kind of as long as you have the land, you can bring them in? Um, no, they have very strict rules against bringing in wild animals. So you're absolutely not allowed to bring in any wild animals to rehabilitate. Mm-hmm. And you have rehabilitation centers, which the forest department runs, where you can give the animals there. But if we have private land, we're only allowed to get in domesticated animals like dogs, horses, cats. And um, you have a lot of rehab centers in and around the cities and rural areas for for the small animals, but very few for equines in particular. So her love for horses, you know, she's, she's, she's loved them because we've had horses on our properties since we were at our wildlife lodges since we were very, very young. So... So she decided that, you know, this equine center would work well because she had the land and, um, yeah, and it, and it did. And right now, like you said, we are tight on space because you only have an X amount of space and horses require space. And then there comes a line where you have to sort of, there comes a time where you have to sort of draw a line and say, listen, we can't take more as much as we'd like to, unless we you know, increase the size of this sanctuary, buy more land. But but for now, we have a total of 15 rescues, which mm-hmm. she looks after. And um, yeah, it's amazing. Some of their stories, I mean, yeah, it's all been documented. It's, it's all there to be seen. And it's just spectacular. Yeah. So she fell in love with horses and you fell in love with leopards. Yep. <laughs> so when you first started, <clears throat> excuse me, when you first started photographing leopards, like what you you were saying that in the very beginning you weren't up there with a camera you were just tracking on foot and documenting your journey just writing and and just with research and things like that right you didn't start off with a camera yes that's correct i'm really curious on the beginning of photography for you and more more so when it really started to become a very big role in your life you know because you are like an extremely talented photographer uh, and it goes beyond, you know, just saying that that you started taking pictures of these animals. Like you are known throughout the world through these images. And I, I kind of want to see like when that started, like when that really first started to become very, very important to you. Yeah. So like you said, I mean, I started off with just a pen and a pad and I started studying these leopards. I started drawing maps. I started pinpointing where I last saw them. And for the first year and a half, I never even dreamt of picking up the camera and i think towards my second year about four or five hundred safaris in i started you know realizing the importance of documenting this animal and i wanted to take the next step and the next step was to start documenting each individual Mm -hmm. not just leopards as a species because i slowly started to realize that every leopard has its had its own character it had its own little idiosyncrasies that made him different. And they were just like humans. 
and what the books said about them, you know, categorizing them and, and classifying them all as one and their behavior as one was wrong. Right. They say that leopards don't like to scavenge. Absolutely wrong. There's one particular leopard we call Tonias who loves to scavenge. They say leopards don't like water. There's one leopard when whenever there's a thunderstorm, he climbs the barest tree, goes, sits, and gets wet in the rain and absolutely loves it. <laughs> wow. And these leopards eat at different times, sleep at different times, hunt different prey, and look different. Yeah, they do have they, their own world. You, they live in their, they, they're, they're totally different. Yeah. Absolutely. They, they all, they've all got their individual characteristics, which make them different. And that was when it dawned on me that I wanted to, you know, take this further and understand each individual and see if I could tap into their world. And that's when I picked up the camera because I needed the camera for identification. So leopards are not easy animals to identify. Unlike the tigers, the tigers have their stripe patterns on their right and left flank. You can look at that and easily, you know, match the stripe patterns and know which tiger it is. But leopards, because of the density of spots, it was extremely def difficult to know which individual, unless, you know, like Scarface, for example, who had a big scar on his face, then it was easy to tell. So the camera really helped because in India, unlike the African leopards, in Africa, to identify, they look at the spot patterns on the whiskers because the spot patterns on between their eyes and their foreheads is very dense. But in India, the pattern marking on the head is not as dense. And each leopard has a unique mark, which, you know, is, is very easily easy to distinguish if you've got a picture of. So that's when I picked up the picture and I started taking these face shots. And I think they were in 2010 and is when I was a naturalist. And somewhere around 2011 is when I picked up the camera and started documenting 21 different individuals. And firstly, it was ridiculous to have 21 different individuals in such a short area. Right. Yeah. which which no one really knew. And everyone thought that these animals, there was one in every 15 square kilometers. But that was wrong because these animals are a lot more social than what we believe. They, be, they may be territorial animals, but, you know, what, what we've documented over the last 10 years is is mind-blowing. They, they spend a lot more time with each other. They are a lot more accepting of each other. And they're smart. They know that they don't have to be in conflict all the time because conflict means death. All it has to do is two male leopards to have a, you know, a fight. One gets injured in the paw and he can't hunt for a week. He withers away and dies of hunger. These animals know they're smart. They, they try to avoid conflict. They, they, they are social as many people would like to disagree with me. They are. And this is from 12 years of spending 12 hours a day, every day, you know, watching them and documenting them. So studying these leopards with the camera became a lot more intimate. I started, you know, really identifying each individual, their characteristics, and started writing research papers and, you know, really, really getting down to it. And that's when I realized that, you know, I've done my research, I've identified my leopards. Now my next step is to help people see the beauty in these animals. Right. And... Photography, of course, is an ex wildlife photography is extremely saturated in today's world. And when I say that, I mean everybody, you know, around me had a camera. Mm -hmm. And 
everyone you know could could afford you know huge cameras much better than mine and i had to be different yeah and in order to be different i had to develop my own style and i couldn't do that quickly i had to have my signature sort of edit and style mm-hmm. and the way i looked at it was i wanted to sort of evoke this emotion i want to sort of target these emotions of the viewer when he looked at this photograph of this leopard and you know see this indescribable beauty in him and something which i saw and i wanted to do that because i wanted to create awareness on this animal so my style then went into these artistic edits at the same time i made sure that i you know show the world that i was a wildlife photographer i could take pictures without editing it mm-hmm. but in order for me to reach that wider market you know these the the people who wanted to hang it up on their walls people who wanted to put it on their magazine covers people who wanted to you know you know have this displayed everywhere i had to change my style and i had to be different i found my niche and that was the leopard and now i needed to sort of do something artistic which is when i came up with my own genre which i like to call environmental surrealism right which is taking these pictures of these animals and building this very sort of magical enchanting sort of feel around them and you can see through the way i edit my images i i do it a lot through light and shadows mm-hmm. because oh, yeah. i believe light and shadows add depth to a picture and when you have depth to your picture you know and you couple it with some nice words it becomes powerful and i sort of started playing with shadows and lights and editing it in particular ways which started eventually giving me my signature style and it worked because it hadn't been done in india before and india back then wasn't ready for it a lot of people said that you know this is not wildlife you should you should you should show us what the eye sees but the eye doesn't see through a 600 mm lens right. at f2.8 aperture yeah. and no an iso iso 1600 the eye sees at 20 to 24 mm at maybe f8 f9 mm-hmm. does that mean i have to shoot with this wide angle no absolutely not and i i i decided to just you know put my blinkers on i i said this is my style this is what i'm going to stick to i'm not going to listen to what the rest of the world has to say and i developed this um this this artistic sort of touch and it worked and you know i started writing and expressing what i was seeing and i started giving the back story of these animals in the forest and describing the origins and <laughs> and and yeah it all came together very very well fortunately for me and um and and that was when things started becoming serious it's it's when my work started getting recognized and you know magazines were publishing it and mm-hmm. then i said i'm going to start exhibiting my work right and i did not want to exhibit it to just the wildlife market because because that's a very small niche market i wanted to go bigger and i wanted to sort of go in and tap the art market and to do that i had to of course you know display my work as art to get into those galleries 
And that's when I came up with certain exhibitions, which I displayed in India and across the world called Light and Shadows, where we had, um, you know, this artistic touch where we used the elements of fading elements like mist and and clouds, which were all very transient to sort of signify that our wildlife is withering and fading like the mist and like the clouds. Wow, that's so cool. So I started, yeah, I started adding these little, you know, metaphors and uh, it, all, it all worked and I just found something different. Have there been, you know, times, especially in the beginning, um, I'm sure, where where your nerves kind of, you know, like it's, this is just looking at these images. I feel like I know you have big lenses and you're, you're shooting from a distance, but it seems very intimate, right? You, you've captured this style that seems very, very intimate, very real. Like I can, yeah. I can see that you are not only close to them, but, but close emotionally to them. At least it feels like that. Right. But yeah. in, in that, in getting that content and that footage, you know, kind of take me into the the mind of of you know quietly getting the shot and and what that feels like to you. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, it is extremely powerful. But at the same time, as deep a bond as I build with Scarface and Tonias and some of these other leopards and tigers which I have tracked, it's very important to understand that these are wild animals. That it's important to maintain a distance with them. And when I've been there, I've I've you know, there's huge amounts of emotions running through me. Sometimes I've seen leopards after four years thinking they're dead and they suddenly reappear and it, and you have tears. Like you, you, you literally, you're crying, looking at this leopard being like, I thought you were dead. Right. And then sometimes you have leopards like Scarface where you built such a, you know, huge connection with come right up to your car, scent mark your tire. Literally his tail is maybe a foot away from your face. And you're just holding your breath. And, you know, those few minutes, your body is tense, you're holding your breath and you just sigh out and you're just like, that was magnificent. Yeah. And then there are times where you're in the middle of the forest. It's, it's twilight. You can't see anything but the silhouettes of tr trees around you. You know, the forest goes dead quiet. There are these storm clouds gathering above. Everything's very eerie. The crickets have kicked in. The birds have died. And then suddenly you hear the roaring of a tiger, like 10 feet from you in the ticket. But you can't see him, but he can see you because they're crepuscular. And, and you know at that time that you're being watched and you are in their habitat. They are the apex. If you get off this vehicle, you as a human have no chance of surviving. You know, they will kill you in seconds. And that feeling of being around these apex animals in their habitat, is soul shaking right. and being out there, you know, like, like these moments in twilight when you're hearing the tiger roar, but not being able to see it when, when, you know, you're just out there at the same time, as much as you love them, as much as you enjoy it, you at the same time have to realize that you are not on top of the food chain over here. Like you better sit in that car, stay quiet and respect these animals, keep your distance, which is why we have such long lenses. You know, we, we try to not get as close as we can to these animals yeah. because they're wild. And at the same time, you want to photograph and document animals with them being as natural as possible. The further they are away from your vehicle and you, they're more natural. There, there's some which are extremely bold and do the same, you know, act the same way as they would if you were not there. But 
there's some which are shy where you need to keep a distance and and photograph them. Oh, man. Intense. So, 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 so intense. Wow. Um, I got to ask, though, too, because there are photographers listening, and I'm a photographer myself, and I'm so curious. What, I mean, even if you just have, like, one setup that you could only take out with you just one time, like, what would that setup be camera-wise? Like, camera and lens. Like, what's a common go-to for you for these shots? Wow, that's a tough one. Okay, so... I I mean, a lot of people are going to disagree, but this is something that's really worked for me. I strongly believe in, in a prime lens. Nice. I think that that having a zoom lens gives you the advantage of composing your, your photograph. Or, you know, the, it gives you more flexibility. Yeah, instantly, yeah, instantly flexible, for sure. Exactly. But the prime lens forces you to... to rethink your shot and do something different it forces you to get that picture which you would not usually get if you had a zoom lens right which means if i am 10 feet away from a black panther and Oof. and <laughs> i had yeah which i have been i have been and you know i'm 10 feet away from this black panther if i had a zoom lens at 200 mm i'd probably get this black panther you know in his habitat fit him all in but i don't i carry i swear by my 600 mm fl ED, which is the the new 600 Nikon, which 600. is yeah, and it's extremely light. You can handhold it, but when that Black Panther is 10 feet away from me, I don't want a zoom lens. I right. want a picture which is going to capture his eyes. I want a picture which is going right. to get into his face where where you, you know, lock you in. That, that locks you exactly. right in there. That is amazing. Exactly. I totally know what yeah. you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that to me tells a story. And, and that's what it's about. Yeah. And then, uh, camera body wise, do you, do you have a brand? I use, yeah, I I mean, I I only use Nikon, not because I think Nikon is better than any one. I just, I use Nikon because I've, my dad used it. I've grown up using it. I love it. It's user friendly. I've got used to the buttons as a child. We used to use the, the film cameras. Now we use the, um, the, I use the D5 with the 600 f2.8 and i also use the the new mirrorless z7 so that comes in very handy for me when the subject is still and i can really compose my shot because it has 45 megapixels which uh, the d5 has 21 or 22 which this allows me to sort of you know, really, when when I'm exhibiting my work and 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 printing these images large, the 45 megapixels really allow me to, you know, make that animal life size. Right. Oh man, I dig it. And like you said, you have you have exhibits that are going on now. Or are you are you gearing up for more? Did you just end an exhibit run recently? Yeah, I I just ended an uh, exhibition called Light and Shadows. Yeah. And and I just finished that in December. And I'm working on a new exhibition. This is actually the first time I'm, you know, speaking to anyone about it. Perfect. It's called it's called Life in Black and White. Oh, so, and you have you have you have that on your website as well right now, correct? Yes. Yeah. So yes, exactly. So so that was that was basically a portfolio which I'd done a while ago, but never really got down to exhibiting that. Right. So it was more just monochrome work. So this will go to galleries this will be printed large it will be different images where you know it, it is it, it's basically a lot of of course monochromatic work with dramatic clouds and and my style but at the same time i've sort of 
broken the boundaries of you know photography and 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 used it to signify um you know a dying world we live in and similar to what i've done with light and shadows yeah and yeah i'm not going to give away too much and it's yeah, still no. yeah. in the making it's something which may or may not work you know i've i'm sitting there and i look at these images and i i process them and you know i have to turn my laptop or my or my imac off and i come back to it after an hour and this is after spending 3 or 4 hours in an edit and i'll just delete it i won't even save it because if i save it i know i'll go back to it right. and i'll try reworking on exactly, it exactly but yeah. if i don't like something i just delete it so it's just gone. i have to it's just gone wow. i don't have to worry about it and i have to create it again and i know when i'm going to you know create that again it's going to be better and and different yeah oh man i did so, that yeah you really started getting published uh, around what would you say, maybe 2012 to 2013? Was that kind of the beginning of the snowball of of media and press and, and being published in magazines and all that? Yes, I'd say I'd say 2013 was when I started gathering. I call it the gathering phase. That's when I started really getting a lot of pictures and um, started stocking up my images. But I think 2014 is is when you know. I started, my work started getting recognized and, and that's when a lot of people came, you know, started knocking on the door and yeah, it, it all sort of took off from then. And that's when, you know, wildlife photography from, from being a hobby quickly went to yeah. a passion and then went to a profession. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tough in a way because whenever it, it goes from passion to profession. It sort of loses the romance and the feel of it. Right. And, and I've seen that sometimes happen, which is why, I mean, to, to photographers out there, to, to even myself, I have to keep telling myself, you know, put the camera down every now and then, mm -hmm. go into the forest, go for a trip, and just look at the world through your eyes, not through the eyes of the viewfinder. Because there was a time in 2014, maybe somewhere around November, December, you know, I, I, I had burnt out and I couldn't remember the last time I saw a leopard with my, with my eyes or through the binoculars. I couldn't remember the last time I actually saw the whiskers, the detail of a leopard, like just with my eyes. It was all through the viewfinder and the camera. And, you know, with your shutter clicking and, you know, you're tense, you're anxious about your settings, you know, you're just stressed out. And, right. and that's when I decided from 2015 that I'm going to dedicate, you know, half my week, maybe five or six safaris to taking the camera and photographing. But the other half, like, I'm going to just leave it behind and enjoy it with my binoculars. And, you know, I, it, it made a big difference to my work because when I was shooting for those, for those six or seven safaris, I was a lot more focused, a lot sharper, a lot more creative. My mind was really working well. And it's because I was enjoying my wildlife again. So I think, yeah, once it becomes a profession, it's just really important to make sure it's still a passion. Yeah, I think that's huge, man. And I think as as you know, a professional photographer, full-time photographer, you, you kind of get geared over time to, to think about, you know, your light and shadow when there's no camera around. And even the way you look out, you see 
you see the frame as you would shoot it. And, and sometimes it's good to kind of revert back and, and really just have an open mind for, even if it's a week or a weekend, to just go out and, and use your eyeballs and, you know, remember what it's like to want to capture something with your eyes and feeling before a shutter and before, you know, before pulling Absolutely. a camera up. And I think that's super huge. Um, so yeah. so when, did, uh, when did video become become big in your life was that was that a little bit after this time around 2015-16 or had you been doing video from the start as well no no i i i i was more focused into photography and and it's when the black panther came into my life did i start you know diving into the world of cinematography as well yeah because here i was with the world's most elusive animal which had never been documented or studied this intimately before we're talking about only camera trap footage in the dense jungles of malaysia if i'm right where you know these these animals have been studied otherwise they were so rare that no one really had the opportunity to study and track an individual like the way we did in the forest where i live so he just from nowhere emerged into our lives and give us this wonderful opportunity to sort of study this melanistic leopard. And that's when I wanted to like really grab the opportunity and of course take my images. But at the same time, because of the DSLRs and now, you know, with the the videos they take, I wanted to also, you know, start recording footage because I knew how rare it was. And yeah, that's when it all started. I think when I started taking multiple clips of the Black Panther and then other animals around him and then making these small little video montages. And 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 that's when I started putting them up to start getting recognized. But my serious breakthrough happened with National Geographic when when they saw these images and this and this footage which I had shot of the Black Panther. And they were extremely excited and no one had done like a documentary on them before. Right. So we went to them with this footage and they loved it. And they said, you know, let's, let's do this. Let's make a documentary on them. And, and, uh, here we are. And we've, we've filmed for about a year and a half now. And that was sort of my first proper professional, you know, experience i've had with cinematography and uh and and yeah making a film yeah well and it's so close to home too which has got to be you know amazing to be able to to take everything that you know and that you've learned and through your eye as a photographer which is gigantic and now to add motion which is you know it's that extra little touch that can really just you know be so powerful as powerful as a photograph absolutely yeah you're right it's it's and to me more than that it's an ode to these animals you know this generation of cats well, i started in 2009 it's now 2019 scarface the panther tonias all these leopards and tigers that we've tracked are now past their prime you know they're they're about 11 or 12 and they live to about 12 or 13 in the wild so this iconic generation of cats deserved you know a yeah. story deserved a movie and I couldn't have asked for anything better. And, you know, just right towards the end of their journey, here we are making a film on them, which is, you know, going to be on, at an, on a, on, you know, on a, on a platform, which everyone can, 
enjoy and see. Yeah. And nothing makes me happier than that. I mean, that to me is is telling the story of a forest where, you know, I've grown up. I can't wait for that, man. That is so cool. What's the what's the timeline? Do you have a timeline for that that film or is it still in 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 production? End of the year, hopefully, fingers crossed. Okay, cool. And then Nat Geo, obviously, that's the the connection through it so everyone can see it through Nat Geo, yes. whether that be on the internet or, or on the actual channel. It'll be on the television. It'll be a, it's a feature film on the TV, yeah. Beautiful. Dude, I cannot wait for that. Shaz, this has been the best. Thank you so much for for giving us a look into you know your life and and what you've done and what you guys continue to do with the wildlife camps and and everything going on out there with the cats and and all that man i really appreciate it thanks it was great chatting and thank you for having me um on here it's been great sharing you know all of this and going back going down memory lane yeah. and yeah so people can find you on instagram at shaz jung s h a a z J-U-N-G. And then your website as well is uh, shazjung.com. If you're listening, please go on the site as well as the Instagram, but really dig into the site. I had such a, a good long time like going through and, and you know looking at all, all that you have on there. You really did a lot on the website, which is really, really awesome. So thank you for that. Thank you for what you're doing. And thanks again, man, for just you know being true to yourself uh, as a photographer yeah. and, and you know doing everything that you do for, for wildlife conservation and, and, and all that. Thank you. That's great talking to you. That'll do it, guys. Thank you so much for hanging out and checking out that episode. What an insane life that Shaz lives. And uh, everything that he's done up to this point is just, I mean, it's really unreal. You know, it's like one of those, it's one of those situations where you know that there are people out there that are doing really insanely epic things, right? And in this case, Shaz is doing it to conserve wildlife and he's doing it in epic fashion. And he's also documenting it along the way spectacularly. And he's doing it for Nat Geo right now. And it's just, it's so crazy what what some people do, right? It's so cool. Um, I'm blown away by it. And uh, I hope you guys are too. And I really, really urge you guys to check out his Instagram at Shazjung and his website, shazjung.com. There is so much more info and pictures, and you get to see all the cats that he gets to shoot and uh, a little bit more into his life and his background. And, uh, and yeah. All right, you guys, you can say hey to us at Darkroom. You can say hey to me at Dane Diener. And we will see you guys next week.